Podcast, the podcast for high-achieving gay men who have gone to therapy, want to feel better, and get exactly what they want in life. I'm your host, Harvard Law-trained founder and life coach, Jonathan Herzog. Welcome back, everyone. We have the one and only Evan Lowe. Evan Lowe is a California State Assemblyman coming off the heels of a big, massive win. Congratulations to Evan. He is a Democrat representing the 28th Assembly District, which covers Silicon Valley. Evan is a member of the California LGBT Caucus, the Asian Pacific Islander Legislative Caucus, and was called California's most prolific lawmaker. <laughs> Prior to his election, a number of years back, he served as the mayor and city council member in Campbell, California. In 2020, Evan was named the national co-chair of the Andrew Yang Campaign for President, where we first connected. And Evan, congratulations again. Welcome. How are you? Jonathan, happy Pride. Thanks for having me. Uh, and it's fun to be on the opposite coast, but being connected on some things that we share solidarity and passions for too, and civic engagement and public service and all the, everything in between too. So it's good to chat with you. Absolutely. So Evan, throughout your life, you've blazed trails, made history as the first Asian American, openly gay person, one of the youngest people ever elected to the city council, the youngest Asian, I mean, this could go on forever, the youngest Asian American, Asian American mayor in the country and legislator elected in state history, you literally represent Silicon Valley. If you would take us back, tell us about young Evan growing up in San Jose. What was he like? How did he get to where you are today? Wait, so you're implying that I'm not young anymore? <laughs> it's so true. I was like, oh my goodness. Uh, millennials, we aren't young anymore. Uh, we're, we're growing up. Um, well, again, just again, I appreciate you having me and to, to talk about the important uh, work that we have ahead of us. Um, but you asked the question about going back um, close to two decades ago and running for office as a, as a gayby. Uh, back then, you know, part of the experience was also that there weren't the type of protections that we had in place. We didn't have the internet growing. I did not have the internet growing up. Uh, we didn't have role models in which you can easily find on Instagram or TikTok, role models that you follow for inspiration, for a sense of identity, for a sense of a safe space. I mean, it was at a time in which we didn't have the laws and the protections on the books. Marriage equality was not law of the land. You could we're still lifetime ban on gay men donating blood, couldn't be part of the Boy Scouts, couldn't be a service member, and couldn't adopt. I mean, so many of these different issues. Uh, so when you fast forward to where we are today, while on the books, the law of the land on the books, we might have made significant progress. We know that the, the actuality of the facts is that these laws are going backwards in a number of other states, and our progress is, is going backwards. So that's why this is an opportunity for us to reaffirm our commitment to being engaged and being involved. And again, as a young person, that's why I got involved because I felt like as a fourth generation Californian that I was doing my part to, of civic duty, but somehow society didn't work for me. And we had a proposition back in 2008 called Proposition 8, a statewide measure in California that verbatim, Jonathan, eliminated the rights of same-sex couples to marry. I thought to myself, what did I do wrong? Uh, what, what, what possibly, why would fellow Californians wished to eliminate my rights or the rights of anyone for that matter. So 
all I have to say is there was so much at stake that it was important that we got involved. And that's why I, I did it as well. And that's why I'll continue to do so. And I hope people like you will continue also answering that call to public service. Now, Evan, if you don't mind, I'm going to push you a little bit and just to share a little bit about your own story um, of coming out or finding yourself as a gay man in this world and how you came to find the courage and the confidence in yourself to be the leader that you are today. Um, <laughs> I would um, be lying to you if I said that it was a fabulously well thought out plan. Um, but the fact of the matter is it wasn't. Um, uh, growing up, as I referenced earlier, I did not have any experience or exposure to the LGBT community. We didn't have a gay straight alliance on a, uh, my high school uh, uh, campus. We didn't talk about it in school. I didn't talk about it at home. There was no curriculum around it. There weren't movies and TV and social media that could expose me to this. And all I saw was the fear of a certain segment within the community. And growing up in the 80s, it was that of the AIDS crisis. And that was there was such fear that it was a stigma around that. And I didn't want to be part of that. But it wasn't until I met someone who was openly LGBT in college that I started to be more exposed to that. Uh, but when I first ran for office at approximately about 20, 21 years old, I was running and I wasn't out, but I wasn't hiding it either. But there was LGBT support. And so I remember at a fundraiser, I essentially was outed. Uh, there were different attendees who were there in support, and there was a reporter in the at the fundraiser asking people why they were supporting me, and people were saying, "Well, he we'd have young new energy." Someone else said, "Oh, we'd have the first person of color elected," and someone said, "Oh, we'd have the first gay person elected on the city council." And the next day of the paper, I remember it said, "Evan Lowe, young Chinese American, openly gay, runs for city council." And I remember my dropped that I cannot believe that I was just outed by the paper and I hadn't even talked to my parents about it again we didn't have the sense of what it meant to be LGBT I know it sounds crazy now but truly I was in a space in which I just ignored it and I just thought there was something different about me so um, it wasn't a uh, a fun experience by any stretch of the imagination um, but it was the similar type of struggles and the similar type of fears would my parents disown me would I lose votes? Uh, would I lose friends? What does this mean? Who can I turn to for a sense of belonging? Um, so it was a very dark time, I must admit. Uh, but that's why I feel so passionate about providing, making an environment that is inclusive to all those who are on their own trajectory and path to finding yeah. their own identity as well. Evan, that's really, really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. So you were outed by the local paper. <laughs> at this campaign event. What was going through your mind at the time? Like, how did you, how did you reckon with that? Well, I remember I called the reporter immediately and yeah. I said, I, I was very upset. And I said, why would you use, why would the headlines read, Evan Lowe, young Chinese American, openly gay runs for city council. I did, I said to the reporter, my question was, did you talk about my opponents and saying a 73 year old, Irish American openly <laughs> heterosexual running for city council. You didn't say that. So why would you say that about me? And by the way, why did you even credibly ask if that was appropriate, especially in that environment? This was back in 2003, 2003. Mm. So different times. And again, if we recall 
our history, <laughs> George Bush and others were pushing a, a, a constitutional uh, amendment to make marriage codified between man, um, a man and woman uh, during during that time frame. Um, if I can remember correctly, it might have been just a few years off, but um, it was just a different time. Um, but I just remember that I did have someone, a dear friend who was openly gay. Mm -hmm. And he said, you should tell your parents first because you don't want them to see about it in the paper. Mm -hmm. And so I remember I met up with my mom uh, to have lunch with her. And my friend waited in the parking lot um, and just sat in the parking lot in the car and said, I'm going to wait here. And in case things go wrong, I'll still be here in the parking lot in case mm -hmm. you need me to take away and you just need to have a friend. And so, and I just remember like, uh, that person incredible and just I am a beneficiary of the love and kindness and grace and for now my role that that uh, that is something that I hope to be able to to do uh, to to provide an environment like as I said to be inclusive and to being that that safety net for someone who is going through anguish who's going through pain and trying to find belonging that is what I want to do and that's what I hope all of us can do because everyone is on their own journey and on their own path yeah. Um, what was it like? I know I have a lot of um, friends who uh, reckon with the intersection of Asian American identity and, and gayness. Um, I'm wondering what that conversation was like um, and what that process has been like in the context of family and um, that part of your identity. Well, thanks for the question. I think uh, many within the community, uh, the intersectionality is, is important to acknowledge and address as we talk about social justice. Um, and just straight to it, certainly I lost significant support within the Chinese community uh, when, it, when it became public that I was openly gay. Um, and individuals told me during that time uh, that they would no longer support me because of that. But I will say that, that while those were difficult times, adversity builds character and you're in that moment and it's difficult. But fast forward to where we are today, nearly two decades later, I have had incredible conversations with uh, Chinese and Asian American parents who have said, who have pulled me aside and kind of quietly said, I, I too have a son like you. Uh, can I talk to you about it? Or uh, thank you for being so out because we don't know anyone else like you and this yeah. has helped make sense of it. And of course, culturally within the Asian community, um, it's it's a generalization and statement, but generally speaking, culturally, the cultural norms are such that we don't talk about this issue. Um, there are no gay people that really exist. That's not really a thing. That's why if you look at, for example, Asia and the general vicinity, vicinity there's only one territory, Taiwan, that has marriage equality as law of the land. The rest of it, many countries in Asia are silent on homosexuality, essentially, um, and it's not really talked about. So there is significant stigma and work that needs to be done, which is why to uplift within our LGBT community, too, to identify the various voices uh, as well, to make that intersectionality that is so important. Yeah, we're, we're, we're talking to Evan Wolfson next week, um, who was the architect of um the fight for marriage in the united states um and i'm i'm curious to you because you mentioned proposition eight and being and working in california at that time what what role or what what change happened in you as in in prop eight and in in the fight for marriage how did that um evolve in your own uh identity your own your own process of of becoming 
um, how did how did that impact you? Well, I hope you'll when you when you chat with Evan, you'll tell him that another Evan said hello <laughs> from the West Coast. <laughs> uh, and and frankly, um, I am a beneficiary. Generations are beneficiaries of his commitment and work to our community, and that's not lost on me by any means. So I hope you'll share that uh, with him. Um, but to your point about Proposition Eight at the time in California, which which was a proposal to eliminate the rights of same-sex couples to marry, really galvanized uh, many to no longer sit on the sidelines. That this was an existential threat. This would eliminate the rights for us, and for people like us, and for members of our community. And you asked about the intersectionality. Traditionally, again. Um, Asian Pacific Islanders, typically you won't see them on the streets. Uh, of course, more recently because of the Stop Asian Hate movement. But prior to that, you really didn't see a wide variety of Asian Pacific Islanders marching on the streets and with with protest and um, and and getting arrested and all those type of type of things. But uh, this, of course, galvanized LGBT Asian Pacific Islanders to recognize the importance of this as well. Um, and just on that moment, because you asked about that, the experience of Asian Pacific Islanders of social justice is important in these United States. Uh, whether or not it be the California alien land law of 1912, for example, that forbid Asian Pacific Islanders from owning property, or the Japanese internment camp, or interracial marriage as being illegal, uh, or that of the Muslim ban, uh, that is similar to that of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which forbid migration from a geographical region coming to these United States. And you think, Jonathan, that that was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 in the United States. And you think, well, this would never happen again. That's 1882. We would never, the United States would never ban migration from a geographic region just because of racism. When in fact, yep, under the Trump, administra Trump administration, we did that to Muslims. So we see that history repeats ourselves, and why it's so important for us to be engaged, and not just under the the the, the narrative of the LP, LGBT that if I'm straight, that's a gay issue that I don't need to be worried about it. But rather, no, if there's an attack on women's rights on reproductive freedoms, that we as allies must be involved. If there's a attack on Muslims. Black Lives Matter, LGBT pride, I mean, all these issues are intertwined, but the fundamental that binds us together is that of the social justice and basic human decency. And then you were talking about how when you were growing up and you didn't have all the social media and all the abundant media <laughs> out there, what were your examples of what's possible? And um, yeah, I mean, did you, did you have any role models or people you thought that's that's the kind of courage and voice I want to emulate or appreciate. Yeah, um, well, at least in terms of my, at least under the the the, uh, the conversation of LGBT, I must admit that there wasn't that much in the early years of, of growing up. Of course, in the political sense, we had stalwarts like Barney Frank in, in Congress, uh, who was very well known, but he was also very lonely at the time because there weren't that many openly LGBT members of Congress, um, also making uh, waves and representing our community with a deep sense of pride. But with the 
framing of the Asian Pacific Islander community, born and raised in San Jose. Uh, we had individuals like Norman Mineta, who is the first mayor of San Jose, congressman, served in the cabinet secretary of transportation during 9-11, uh, who landed all the planes. He recently just passed away, but he was a mentor of mine. He was a um, social justice advocate. He lived during the internment camps. Um, in the United States, and instead of running away and being upset at the government by taking away his rights, he said, no, I'm going to get into the arena and be involved and run for a public office, be a cabinet secretary under two administrations. And that is just the, I mean, that's, she's just such an icon from the community. And I know that we have similar experiences from the, the, the framing of the LGBT community as well, too. And I'm just hopeful that we can put our mark in American history and provide a blueprint for the next generation of LGBT members of our community who want to also answer to the call to public service and uplift our community in many different ways. I guess just on that note, did you always know that you wanted to do what you do, to be in public service, to be in public office? How did you, how did you come to figuring that out? Jonathan, no, I am a good Asian boy. I was supposed to become a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, like a good Chinese son, like my father, who's an optometrist, and my uncle, who's an orthodontist. What I was supposed to become a doctor. I know. I fell so far off the cliff. They're like, wait, what are you doing? Um, so no, I did not follow these traditional roles. Um, but my father always just said that this participate and be involved in the community in some way. So those those values were instilled in me uh, and I will continue to do so. But I will share with you, and I say this frequently, that I don't necessarily um, enjoy politics in that sense of, you know, these are the things that you really don't talk about uh, at the dinner table. You don't talk about politics. You don't talk about, the, you, you talk about niceties. Um, and again, culturally, this is, um, it's, it takes some time to calibrate, as you know, even on the political sense of campaigning, we have to campaign, you know this, ask individuals for money, who likes to do that? Um, whereas in the Asian culture, we like to be independent, we, we fight for the bill, we are self-sufficient. And so it takes time to calibrate some of these cultural norms as well, too. And I'll again, I acknowledge the fact that I do believe that because of some of those cultural norms, and talking about public service and what is required, that is oftentimes a barrier of entry for, for many individuals as well too. So um, however we can help create an environment that opens up the opportunity for young individuals, maybe who don't have a bit large Rolodex, who aren't independently wealthy, they also need to be uh, part of the decision-making process in our democracy. Now let's fast forward just a little bit. Um, we're not exactly going chronologically here, but you become the national base, uh, national co-chair of the Andrew Yang campaign for president. How did this come about? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you were involved. I should ask you. How, 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 I mean, actually, I'm curious. What, why did you get involved? <laughs> well, so my, my days with the Yang campaign date back to 2018. Um, back when the campaign was five people, it was bankrupt. We had no polling, no name recognition, no money, no nothing. <laughs> and I came across this random guy named Andrew Yang who wanted to give everyone $1,000 a month. 
And it's really intimately tied to my gay story and my thoughts about gayness because one of the lenses I came to fighting for a basic income was seeing how if you are in a family that rejects you or if you are in a family that won't support you or um, come from any background or circumstance where things outside of your control means you don't have the resources you need to meet your you know, basic needs. Like it just made perfect sense to me that this was the way to empower people to provide for themselves, to truly have self-love and self-sufficiency. And so to me, it was like the most important thing I could do to at the time, drop out of Harvard Law, resign as student body president, leave everything, move to the middle of Iowa in the dead of winter on my own <laughs> um, to beat the drum and, and build the case. So I was a little bit before your time. And by then, actually, I was running for, for Congress in my, in my home district in New York on, um, on the basic income, on Andrew's vision. Um, but it was such a great thrill and like honor to see you um, rise to prominence as well and uh, become a really leading voice um, for the movement. One that, again, just two years prior was like a handful of kids in a room with a <laughs> big idea and a dream. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I hope those that might be listening uh, can recognize the importance of following your passion. Uh, that we make our markers in many different ways. And oftentimes, I think there's a short-sightedness on how we define success, uh, which is that of helping to ensure that we define success in our own ways and do not allow others to help define what it means to have a fulfilled life and to wake up every day knowing that we have purpose in this world and life is short. So let us follow our passions and move the needle and make our marker in life. And of course you have done that. Uh, my experience similarly was with Andrew Yang. Uh, did I believe that it was a long shot? Of course, politically speaking, yes. But do I think that there is a movement and that there is significant deliverables that are transformative in the conversations that he's provided and providing us a dialogue around some of these key elements that are so important to acknowledge and address? Absolutely. And that is well known. No one will dispute the fact that the Yang Gang, our Yang Gang, individuals like yourselves, and through Andrew, we've created an environment in which we can have frank and honest policy conversations about reforming the system. And of course, we care. So that's part of the conversation. And I'm just so proud of people like yourselves. I met you th through this campaign and through this apparatus. And I know we're all, many of us will stay connected and helping uplift one another uh, through Andrew and, and the campaign as well too. But it was absolutely an experience in which it was a deep sense of pride and I was proud to be part of it. And um, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. Yeah, and you know, one thing I, tend to come back to um, just in the context of that sort of shared experience is we helped create $293 billion in cash relief during the pandemic. And to your point about there's lots of different ways to get to Rome and lots of different ways to mark your impact on the world. That is something that to me is like an indelible mark <laughs> just to be so proud of that 100 million American families um, receive the promise of a check of a cash in the mail 
um, in, in no small part, um, thanks, thanks to that work. So, I mean, and, and just on that note, when you think about the policy of direct cash payments, hmm, that sounds very similar to what we heard during the pandemic. Uh, it just called in a different way, but is it always credited to individuals who really amplified that message? Not necessarily, but look, we're not in the wor work, we're not doing this for the acknowledgement or the pat on the back. We're doing this because we care and that we know that we are making a mark in the world and that we have passion and a commitment to our community as well too. And that's what matters. That ultimately is what matters. And frankly, in this environment too, and just talking a, a little bit about politics, the incentives are in the wrong areas, which is to say that oftentimes in our current political system, the incentives are for those who like to grandstand and like to be very public about certain statements. Whereas many, much of the work, frankly, is boring. It's not exciting. You won't make headlines, but you're getting the job done and helping ease the pain and suffering for everyday Americans. And that's what fundamentally matters. And that should be the definition of success. That should be our marker in life, not the rewards of how many Twitter followers or what crazy thing you said yesterday, right? That is not what should be the definite, that's not how we should define success of public service and government. And that's why we are so drawn by saying, how do we ease the pain and suffering for everyone and just doing it without the acknowledgement? You can take credit for it. You call it whatever you want, but we're just going to help advance and do our part. Yeah. You know, Evan, there's going to be, and there already are so many people inspired by your example of what's possible. And I know we keep going back to the to the journey there, but I think it's just such great insight for people who are curious and who are inspired by your example. One thing I found in my work, true for myself and many of the people I work with, it follows from Andy Tobias's thesis. He, he had this idea of the best little boy in the world, right? So gay men grow up in this world with these set of expectations, the external validators through accomplishment and achievement, while simultaneously being told, you're wrong, you're a problem, there's something inherently unworthy about you. And so over time, um, young gay boys in particular build up this identity built around external validation, external approval, people pleasing. But when you're someone like you, who is in the driver's seat, who is the captain of the ship, who is the leader, you have to evolve from being that best little boy who pleases the boss to being the boss. So how did you make that transition? How did you make that evolution? Because I know a lot of people who are climbing corporate ladders or who are collecting accolades and making their mark in the world, but wonder, how do you cross that precipice to get into leadership, to get into being the boss? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> All of it. <laughs> Look, I, I think you ask an important question. And I, Actually, these are very thought-provoking questions, um, which, which actually speaks to the quality of uh, the way you approach um, these conversations. Um, but a couple of things is, one is owning the responsibility and the, the position. I shared with you earlier, I don't necessarily like politics. I more on the, uh, I'm more of a, an introvert. I, I identify as that. When I do public speaking, people ask, oh, you, you speak well. But I, I said, I, I would lie to you if I didn't get butterflies every single time I was about to speak or put up my mic on the floor of the state legislature. I would, that, that's false. And the reason why I really want to emphasize this is because so many, when they think about politics, politician, 
it evokes a certain image of an individual who is an older heterosexual uh, white male, affluent white male, um, who is well-spoken. And what I think is important is we have an environment in which we're talking about, hmm, how do we make sure that we have a uh, first-generation uh, uh, immigrant experience in public service? How do we make sure that we have politicians who can speak and represent a community with pride who may say that they have dyslexia or were the first in the family to go to college or who still live with their family members or who are struggling themselves to make a living. I mean, these experiences are very important so that we can help debunk the notion that politics is like an ivory tower and it doesn't serve the people, but that it is a reflection of our community and that others can see themselves in doing the same thing. So to answer your question, I think that's related and, and there's a nexus to that, which is to say that understanding that we have an obligation, and I well know this as chair of the California LGBT caucus, yeah, I'm going to talk more loudly about my community. Many people say, we did not elect you just to talk about gay issues. And I said, okay, that's, that's fair, but I also have an obligation to my community. And so therefore amplifying this voice, because if I'm not talking about these issues and advocating for our community, who will be? If I'm not advocating to stopping Asian hate, who will be? Um, if I'm not talking about and on um, policy issues, helping to address the issue of affordable housing that I myself too, Jonathan, have struggling to have a single family home in this region, I cannot afford to live in my in my community, and that's a that's a truth, that's a fact. So having these experiences, I think, are important in understanding what the role we play and the obligation that we have. And then it kind of emboldens us. I think part of it is being authentic. To ask the question, how do you ascend? At least where I'm at in my life, it's to be authentic and to be yourself. I'm not trying to pretend to be someone I'm not. And therefore, people understand that experience. So when I'm talking to maybe constituents who might be let's say anti-housing or shorter, small, smaller in terms of their growth perspective, I'll just tell them I'm advocating for more housing because I cannot afford to live in my community. And this is not a unique experience to me. This is probably your children will not be able to afford to live in these communities as well. And that's why I'm so passionate. Why do I fight for LGBT community? Because I'm openly LGBT. Why do I fight for Asian Pacific Islanders? Because I'm Asian Pacific Islanders. I mean, having these experiences are important to then say, that's why we need to recruit more individuals like yourselves who understand a deep sense of, of grace and empathy for their communities and the different lived experiences as well. Okay, Evan, this is kind of a strange curveball, so bear with me. Or feel free to punt. <laughs> um, but your dear friend Kamala Harris is now in the White House, which is very exciting. Um, and I'm wondering, what about like Evan 2024, Evan 2028? Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> you're so kind. <laughs> I, I'm genuine and sincere in this, but I just talked about being authentic. This is true. Um, I will continue to do whatever I possibly can to, and when we talk about making a mark, to help expand our LGBT legislative caucus. And that we're going to do that. This cycle, we just had a primary on Tuesday, and we're going to almost double. That's right. You heard that double the amount of openly LGBT legislators in the state of California. And of course, people may think, well, it's California. Of course, you're so progressive. That's not the, that's not the truth. Uh, there are many pockets in which there are some unique challenges that exist. And so as much as I can do to help uplift members of the community, 
uh, and speak to these and also show solidarity that it's not just about LGBT, but of course we're talking in the month of June as Pride Month, but to help show that solidarity for others and, and lending that experience. So I'll continue to do that as much as possible. I'm just saying I did the math. You're over 35. <laughs> You're a natural born US citizen. <laughs> and you've already been on a top five presidential campaign. Just saying, just letting that percolate, <laughs> letting that manifest as it Well, were. what about you? What about you? We need more people <laughs> like you to help answer the call to public service too. And by the way, I think um, I lost my first race uh, when I ran for city council. I was going to ask you about this. I yeah. want to hear about, yeah. And so when I, and I think, and I want to talk about that story because it was difficult then. Um, and I was, I mean, again, depressed. I wanted to, I'm like, oh my God, why does the world hate me? But it adversity builds character and you learn from these experiences and no one remembers that loss now uh, to that extent. Um, but I am a better person for it. Um, not to say that I encourage people to run and lose, but it's to say that to pick up the pieces and think about how to learn from these experiences and um, build off of that. And that's what is equally important. How, how did you do that though? Because I mean, yes, in, in hindsight, in retrospect, obviously like great success story, just a little, you know, tiny bump around the way, but I'm sure in the moment, as you said, it didn't feel like that. So how did you get through that, past that? Well, I think then that's why we have to build a strong community. So that um, when, when I when I lost, I had a few mentors who said who coached me through it and just kind of um, talked to me and saying that th this isn't the end of the world and wow you did so well why don't you continue on and there are other ways to do it and by the way it's not just about public service um, in that way you, maybe you don't run maybe you go be a staff member maybe you do something else and again I had great mentors once I lost I had a number of community members come to me and say. We'd like to hire you. We we saw how well you performed and how well spoken, and we also want to see you succeed. So why don't we hire you and do something? And that that helped me get my footing and, and do different things. And so, um, again, for individuals who are watching, uh, and if you know of a candidate um, or someone, uh, do your part to help uplift them and um, be as encouraging as possible. I have to say, it's so important and valuable to share and learn from that experience. Um, because one of, one of the things I found with high achieving gay professionals is there's this interesting tendency. Um, so just like a brief uh, prelude on this. In psychology, there's this idea of the fundamental attribution error, which says that when good things happen to me, I attribute it to something innate about me. When good things happen to other people, I say it's just luck. And the flip for bad things. When bad things happen to me, uh, it's because I got unlucky bad things happen to someone else, it means they're just a bad person. And I think psychology has gotten this entirely wrong, <laughs> at least as it relates to gay men in particular, because I found we do the exact opposite. We make something mean something inherently wrong about us when something bad or a failure happens. And we make it mean it's like a fluke <laughs> when something good happens. And what, what I've seen is we use this against ourselves. So we use our professional accomplishments, say, as an example for why we can't get what we want in our relationships or in our personal lives. And I think that's a complete misattribution. I think if you have the meta skill to pick yourself on up from a loss and go on to become mayor and city council member and all the things you've accomplished, what that illustrates is you have the meta skill to have a thought, have a goal and create it no matter what.
So I know there's a, there's a lot there, but it's just to say, I really appreciate that part of your journey and wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, you could, I mean, just look at the two most powerful individuals in the world and Joe Biden losing presidential election, learning from that and eventually becoming president. Vice President Harris running for president, runner-up prize being vice president. I mean, these examples are so important to help provide an opportunity for individuals to process because you do you make a very important point. But what I also think is important is that individuals process their experiences in different ways and to acknowledge that fact that the interpretation is different for everyone given their life experience. But what is important, though, is that we are reaffirm the positivity in an individual answering the call to service, oftentimes making significant personal sacrifices for themselves and for their families and financially and everything in between to help answer that call. And that's why I'm so passionate about creating an environment in which we can amplify the opportunity to make the water warm for any individual seeking that. And should they seek it and unfortunately fail, that we provide them the safety net of, of love uh, to help encourage them to pursue their passions and to hone their skills in whatever ways possible. Well, Evan, you've certainly done that and much more. I'm wondering in our final moments here uh, today, if you have any thing you really wanted to share that we didn't get to, any questions or thoughts or things you want folks to hear about you, your journey, about being gay, about leadership, anything in between. Yeah, everything in between. I, I want to know what's the what's next on the horizon for you. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I mean, we we're talking about the experiences uh, that you and I frankly share answering the call to public service and also understanding intersectionality, also understanding the complexities of our community uh, and also understanding the individualism that also exists in this too. And you put that all together and lead us to where we are today. Frankly, and it's in this constant moments of reflection, um, checking in on ourselves um, and our community. Um, so what is the future hold for you? Yeah, well, thank you. Well, so right now, the plan and the thing that's happening is we're scaling the gay man's life coach. The plan is for every gay man in the United States and across the world to have access to the best life coaching possible. Because even in the stories you shared with me, um, take for even example that that setback, right? And that, and that loss in the race, it is not inevitable that you would have gotten back up, had the belief and moved forward to get to where you are. And what I see, and if you look at the data on 40% of LGBT teens having suicidal ideation during the pandemic, 75% being depressed or anxious. Or, and, and I mean, the, the, the numbers are pretty bad, <laughs> but there is nothing inevitable about that success, about that excellence, about that, that self-belief. And to me, what I've seen um, over the past number of years at the heart of presidential and congressional and, and, and protocol politics is without hyperbole, your thoughts create your results. What you think is possible is what you see is what you create. And I think that is like the most powerful insight <laughs> there is in the world. And it applies to every single part of our lives. 
And so to me, this is like the next 50 years, the, 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 the project, the thing I'm uh, sort of driven and committed to expanding. Um, because I have to say in particular for gay men, and again, speaking for myself, my own experience too, because of a lot of the internalized homophobic garbage, and I, I bucket these, I, I call them the, the four mind fucks of homophobic social conditioning. That is perfectionism, people pleasing, external validation, and the fuck it effect. And what starts out as like a really innocuous thought can end up leading to like disaster and like death, really. <laughs> and so that's the, that's the gist is like building this community of like resilience and prevention and creation and knowing that literally exactly in anything you want to create in your life, personal, professional, relationship, otherwise, is available to you. And we can pull and use all the evidence of what we created for us and not against us. So that's my mission. Um, as we talked about before, certainly will um, likely run again in a decade. <laughs> but I view that as part and parcel of building this foundation for the next 50 years, because I want every gay man to know they have the self-love and the self-sufficiency to do whatever it is they want. That's, that's, that's beautiful. Well, as we close, I want to, number one, uh, thank you for keeping in mind to have dialogue um, from coast to coast. Uh, and to two, uh, thank you for allowing me to also share my admiration for you and your work that you're doing to help uplift our community because our community needs the type of TLC and love. Uh, we need and that help, baby. <laughs> we need that affirmation uh, as much as possible. And so oftentimes if we just gloss over it, especially during Pride Month, where it seems like every corporation now, it's, it's a populist thing to show their solidarity. But um, these are different lived experiences, the day-to-day -day things that we go through. And sometimes um, we, we we ignore it and we just uh, act as if it didn't happen. But um, these conversations are important for us to do these check-ins. Um, so yeah. I appreciate it so much and can't wait to be in support of next time your name is on the public ballot for all Evan I'm a huge fan congratulations to you where can folks tune in and follow your um, success to come oh sure um, uh, either on social media uh, Twitter uh, at Evan Lowe or on Instagram and the handle is aim high get low aim high get low thank you so much Evan Lowe social change is created by human beings with human brains and you are a perfect example of what's possible. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Hey, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you have to check out The Gay Man's Life Coach at jonathanherzogcoach.com. It is the community of gay men transforming their lives to feel better and get exactly what they want. Join us at jonathanherzogcoach.com and book a one-on-one -on -one consult today. And if you have one minute, it would be so awesome if you could leave a review on this podcast so we can help spread the word and help more gay men. See you soon.